Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Scripture for today's sermon is Judges chapters 17 and 18, and I'll be reading chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word, for all of it, even the darkest parts. I pray that in the midst of those darkest parts, you would show us the light of the gospel in a brighter way than we've ever beheld it before. That's what we ask for you to do this morning. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 17 as we finally arrive at the two conclusions. Yes, two. Two conclusions to this book. We're going to dive into the first one today, which happens in chapters 17 and 18. Next week, we'll start tackling conclusion number two, which goes through chapters 19 to 21. But the fact that Judges has two conclusions shouldn't surprise us because I know all of you remember all the way back to the beginning of this series, right? And you remember that the book of Judges had two introductions, right? Sure, sure, yeah, whatever. When we started this series, we talked about how the double introduction and the double conclusion of this book, they actually parallel one another. They parallel one another in a way that reveals the downward trajectory of this book. In other words, in the introduction, what we began with was God promising to empower his people to drive the Canaanites out of the land that he had promise to give them, but, but by the conclusion, they not only have not driven out the Canaanites, they have embraced them and become just, just like them. They have been Canaanized. That's the word we've been using to talk about how God's people became like the Canaanite culture that surrounded them. We lay these things beside one another. We, we, we see this downward Trajectory. In fact, when we really look closely at the parallels between Judges' introduction and conclusion, we see that by the time we get to the conclusion, this process of canonization is finally complete. They are totally canonized, just like the Canaanites. I can show you that through just, just a few things. In the introduction, 
The book began with Israelite tribes working together to war against their enemies. In the conclusion, we're going to see Israelite tribes warring with one another as enemies. In the introduction, it's probably the weirdest story we got there, uh, Israel cut up one of their enemies as a as a witness of God's judgment on Canaanite sin. Next week, in Judges 19, we will see Israel cut up one of their own. And it will be a witness of God's judgment against their own sin. In the introduction, we got at least one picture, one good picture of God's blessing flowing freely between men and women and their relationships through provision and protection next week. We will see men treat women not with blessing, but with brutality. Not, not with provision and protection, but gang rape, death, and dismemberment. Truly, canonization is complete. And here's the deal. Everything that I just, all those parallels I just described, all of those so far, those only have to do with the Israelites' immorality. I haven't even pointed to the worst parallel yet, namely idolatry. Very first verse of this book. How does it begin? It begins with God's people coming to him as king, seeking to do what is right in his eyes. Very last verse of the book. How does it end? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see the trajectory all the way down to completion. They completely discarded God through idolatry, which led them to embrace immorality until you could no longer see a difference between an Israelite and a Canaanite. Canaanization complete. And today, through the first conclusion in this book, we are meant to see that the heart, the heart of this canonization is idolatry. And if you've ever read through these chapters, I don't know if you've read through the final chapters of Judges. Most people skip them in their annual Bible reading. Um, they don't come with a trigger warning. They should. When we read through these chapters, we tend to believe that the worst thing we see is the immorality of chapters 19 to 21. And don't get me wrong, Shades. It's, it is brutally dark. So brutally dark that it is rarely read and virtually never preached. I've never heard the end of Judges preached. I'm not saying it hasn't. I just haven't heard it. We tend to think that the immorality that's coming is the darkest thing we see. But Shades, the reality that we've got to see this morning is all of that immorality all of it that's coming in 19 to 21, it flows downstream from the fountainhead of idolatry. Like, that's what we're meant to see by the fact that conclusion number one, 17 and 18, Judges 17 and 18, it proceed, the idolatry of it precedes the immorality of the second conclusion. It's communicating us the former is the source of the latter. Idolatry is the fountainhead and flowing downstream is immorality. Idolatry is the worst thing. We don't think that way. For us, it's always immorality. 
that we experience in the world is evil that comes against us or evil within us. But might I submit to you that the relationship between idolatry and immorality is like the relationship between cancer and chemo. I hate the effects of chemotherapy that I have watched my friends suffer through. Fatigue, hair loss, nausea, vomiting, just just watching their body literally be eaten alive. I hate it. But all of my hatred for every last one of those individual side effects, they all come together, they, they coalesce and they climax in my hatred for cancer. That's what I want cured. That's cured. All the effects are gone. You get no immorality, no lying, no pain, no oppression, no war, no no wrong emotions, wrong thoughts, wrong actions. You get none of it if people never turn their back on God and walk away from him. Idolatry flows downstream from the, excuse me, immorality flows downstream from the fountainhead of idolatry. Idolatry is the worst thing. It is the heart of darkness. It's where canonization becomes complete. This is why. This is why we need the first conclusion to the book of Judges. Because it gives us a final warning about idolatry. It does so by showing us truths. Truths, we don't even have time to cover all the things that it shows us, but but it shows us many truths about idolatry so that we can recognize it and reject it. The Apostle Paul tells us not to be ignorant about the devil's schemes. One of his greatest schemes is the way he disguises idolatry so that it creeps into our lives. We don't want to be ignorant of those things. I want to be aware that the enemy roams around like a roaring lion, seeking those whose faith he can devour through idolatry. And so we need these truths so that we can recognize it and reject it. Let's see these truths together. Begin reading with me. Judges 17, verse 1. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Well, this is different. Different than anything we've seen thus far, we're used to judges coming at us now in a very systematic cycle where a main judge feature, a military leader is featured for us and we walk through these nice six steps and none of that's here. The conclusions of this book zoom in on regular Israelites living during this time. We haven't done this yet. Regular old Israelites, they've just been in the background of all the judges' stories so far. The only thing we have really heard about regular Israelites is this repeated line that has come at the beginning of each judge cycle. Something to the effect of, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's virtually all we've heard about them so far, but now we are zooming in to see exactly what that line means. What does it mean that they did evil in the sight of the Lord? And at the heart of that evil is idolatry. That's what we see through the man named Micah. A a, a name that actually means who is like the Lord. It's it's, it's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Comes with an understood answer of no one. 
No one's like the Lord. He's in a category of his own because he is the only God, the only true God. But Micah doesn't live like that. He does not remotely live in line with his name. Look at verses 2 and 3. Micah said to his mother, uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, you, the ones about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, uh, behold, the silver's with me. I took it. This is how I read the Bible in my head, y'all. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. So this conclusion, I told you, gives us a final warning about idolatry by revealing many truths about it. I just want us to focus on five. Right here, we get the first one. Truth number one, idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes. Idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes. We see this through what Micah and his mom do. What, what, what do they do? Micah stole a ton of silver from his mom, son of the year. But he ends up returning it, and she's so thankful that she dedicates the silver to be made into an idol. This seems like simple, straightforward idolatry, right? I mean, isn't this what idolatry is? Isn't idolatry literally making an idol, statue of some kind that's representative of a deity, and then I worship that thing? Isn't that what idolatry is? Well, yes, but if that's all we think there is to idolatry, we are setting ourselves up to be deceived. Because we'll look at that and go, well, I don't do that. Idolatry is no problem for me. But idolatry shades isn't always so explicit. It's often very sneaky. And it's sneaky, what we're seeing right here, is it's sneaky by being syncretistic. There's a party word for the week. Syncretism. You know what syncretism is? Syncretism is the mixing or combining of belief systems. So like if I'm like, I'm a Christian, but I like Buddha, and I bring in some Buddha practices and mix it in with my Christianity kind of thing, that would be syncretism. It, it, it's sprinkling a little paganism in with orthodox beliefs. Is that not what we see Micah and his mom doing? This isn't actually straightforward idolatry. Did you catch what Micah's mom said? Blessed be my son by the Lord. Lord is in all caps for you there. That's your Bible translators telling you that that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's God's proper name. There's no mistaking who she is claiming to give a blessing to her son. And then you read the next verse. She dedicates the money to Yahweh by having an idol made. That sentence makes no sense. Because Yahweh himself had forbidden the making of graven images. That's commandment number two in the Ten Commandments. You'd think Micah's mom would know that. She basically named her son after commandment number one, which was have no other gods before me. Why? Because who is like the Lord? Micah. No one's like the Lord. 
but Micah and his mom have mixed a little bit of surrounding Canaanite religion in with their orthodoxy, which turns it from orthodoxy into idolatry. There's no such thing as syncretistic orthodoxy. Now, her orthodoxy has been turned into secretistic idolatry. Shades, we, we need to see that idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes lest we fail to recognize it and reject it when it tries to sneak into our own lives. Like, like Micah's mom, we can use the name of the Lord. We can claim to follow Christ, but do we syncretistically combine our beliefs in Jesus with the beliefs of our surrounding culture? Just, just think for a minute about some of the gods of our surrounding culture. No, they don't call them gods, but they worship them and give their lives to them all the same in the hopes of getting the good life in return. Think about some of our culture's gods that they worship and, and ask the question, do I marry that idolatry with, with Christianity? For instance, our culture worships at the altar of immediacy. Immediacy, like I want what I want and I want it now. I deserve what I deserve and I deserve it now. We all know, we talk about this all the time, that we live in the midst of a culture of entitlement and immediacy, does that creep into our Christianity? Where worshiping God is just a means to get what I want, what I believe I deserve, and if he doesn't deliver on it quickly, then he's failed me. Do we syncretistically combine the idolatry of immediacy with Christianity? Or how about autonomy? sheer rugged will individualism. Our, our culture worships at the altar of autonomy, where nobody gets to define me but me, not even my own biology. I, I am king over my identity and my destiny, and everyone else's job is just to affirm me. Does the idolatry of autonomy creep into our Christianity, where God exists just to affirm me. Not, not to conform me to an identity that he's given me. And the church, the church too, the church exists just to affirm me. The, the church has no business getting involved in my autonomous Christianity, which is an oxymoron of a phrase, by the way. The church has no business trying to teach me or guide me or heavens correct me or lead me, like, do we syncretistically combine the idolatry of autonomy with Christianity? Or, I'll give you one more, how about prosperity? Our culture worships at the altar of prosperity. Confession, I find this one more deceptive and more alluring in my own life the older I get. My money is my money. My possessions are my possessions. Political power is for me. Everything exists for my 
prosperity? Does, does the idolatry of prosperity creep into our Christianity where God's blessings look the exact same as the American dream? God, again, is just a means to the health and the wealth that I really want. Do we syncretistically combine the idolatry of prosperity with Christianity? Shades, shades. Idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes. But all of it always has the same aim. That's truth number two. Number two. Idolatry aims at magical manipulation. Idolatry aims at magical manipulation. I use the word magic because when we think about magic, we think about external actions. Like we think about an an incantation, trying to say the right words, spell or whatever. We think about mixing the right ingredients for potion or what have whatever it is, as long as I get the words right, I get the actions right, I get the ingredients right, then I will get the desired result. Magic. Magic has nothing to do with me as a person, with my heart, my character. It's all rooted in external actions, which is the same thing that is true of every man-made religion on the planet. Every man-made religion on the planet is rooted in a magic mindset. It's got nothing to do with a person's heart, with internal affections. It's just about doing the right actions so that you can get the desired result. Whatever that is. Peace, nirvana, prosperity. Like, do these things, get this result. Like magic, manipulate the gods just by doing the right things and they'll give you what you want. Is this not the very thing that we see when we look at why Micah and his mother do what they do? Why? Why does Micah confess to his theft? It's because he heard his mama utter a curse against the thief. And he doesn't want to be cursed. Why does Micah's mama immediately speak a blessing over her son instead of disciplining him and and dedicate the silver to be made into an idol? It's because she doesn't want her son to be cursed either. So she's going to go through whatever kind of Canaanite action she's got to in order to secure a blessing from the gods. She, she does the very thing that a Canaanite would do. Let's go through the external actions to try and appease whatever deity is, is there. All of Micah and his mother's actions are aimed at magical manipulation. We do the right actions, say the right words. We get the thing that we want from the gods. Shades, that dynamic is at the heart of all idolatry. Does it creep into our Christianity? Do I do do my actions? Do I read scripture? Do I pray? Do I attend church? Do I worship? Do I take communion? Do I do all of these external actions merely is trying to earn, curry some kind of favor, appease God so that he will give me the blessings that I I want. Do we treat worship like it's magical manipulation? You can tell if you do because when you don't get what you want, you feel like you've earned it and you should have got it. Like 
God, I do all this. I've done all the right things. I've checked all the boxes. Why aren't you giving me what I want? That's how this thing works. No, that's how idolatry works. Shades, see the truth. Any type of relationship rooted in magical manipulation is no relationship at all. It's idolatry, and it's what Micah embraces. In verses 4 and 5, we read that he not only uses his silver to make an idol, he also sets up a shrine. The Hebrew behind that is Beit Elohim, literally means house of God. That's significant because the Beit Elohim, the house of God, the tabernacle, was at Shiloh. But Micah sets up his own. He makes his own ephod. That's a type of priestly garment. And he makes other household gods. Hebrew word there is teraphim. I don't think that it's actually referring to household gods right there. I think it's referring to divination objects. It's more likely in the context right here. A way to divine the will of the, the gods. He's, in other words, he's putting together his own substitute religion. You can see that because he puts the capstone on it. He ordains his own priest, one of his sons. Like he's created his own substitute religion, none of which was authorized by the Lord, but Micah sees it as an authentic expression of his faith. It is right in his own eyes. That's our author's estimation of Micah's actions. Look at verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, like this Micah guy. He's an example of what everybody's doing. This, this little phrase right here, this is the mantra of Judge's double conclusion. It appears four times, twice in the first conclusion, twice in the second conclusion. Everyone is living as their own king. The, the point of the phrase is this, that, that when you have a king... It's the king who makes the laws. It's the king who decides what's right and wrong as they see it. But when there is no king, well, everybody gets to be their own. Everybody gets to decide what's right as they see it. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Which judges describes as doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Those phrases are parallel. When the people act this way, it's described two different ways. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. Those phrases are equivalent. In other words, Judges is saying that when people live as their own king, doing what is right in their own eyes, that is the worst thing. They're doing what's evil, idolatry in the eyes of the Lord. Shades, that's been the worst thing since Genesis 3 where our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God as king to do what was right in their own eyes. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They embraced idolatry. Shades, do we? Do we do, to do what is right in your own eyes, to be your own king, I dare say that's the highest value of our culture. And Judges says it's the deepest darkness. the very heart of evil. It's idolatry. 
it's idolatry because at the end of the day, it's me worshiping me. This is truth number three. Number three, idolatry, once we dig past all of the accoutrements and idols and statues and shrines and actions, once we dig past all of that, we see truth number three, idolatry is me worshiping me. Idolatry is me worshiping me. Because whatever my idol is, it's only a means to get me what I want. Like, I'm not really worshiping it. I'm worshiping me. I'm worshiping it to get what I want. Is, is that not what Micah is doing with his syncretistic, magical manipulation right here? None of this is actually about God being Micah's king. Worship's merely a means for him to get what he really wants, which is prosperity, money. He's been money hungry since this story began. Micah doesn't worship God. Micah worships Micah. That is always the case with idolatry. At its heart, idolatry is me worshiping me. You can see that if you just take like a hard look at the imagery of idolatry. When people create gods, what kind of gods do they create? We, we shape gods into images of what we value. Canaanites are a case in point. Canaanites were an agricultural society. What they needed more than anything and valued more than anything were crops, cattle, and kids to take care of both. So what were their primary gods? Fertility gods. Gods that valued the same things that they did. Micah values money. So he literally makes a god out of one. It's made from the silver that he stole. This is always what idolatry does. It fashions idols that I believe can give me what I want. Idols that value what I value. Idols that look a lot like me. Does this creep into our Christianity? In other words, do we use the Bible in the same way that Micah used his silver? Do we take the words of this book and use them to fashion a God for ourselves? Ignore the words we don't like, Emphasize the ones that we do until we've made a God who looks just like us. Values what we value. And then we worship that God, sing to that God, lift our hands to that God. We are really just lifting our hands to ourselves. Idolatry is me worshiping me. And shades... Here's the reason. Here's the reason I would plead with you to see this. Here's the reason. This is so scary. Such self-worship will never satisfy. Like what you're after in that idol, it will never be able to actually give. That's the next truth that we see. Verses 7 to 12. I'll summarize part of this for you. A, a young Levite from Bethlehem. He strolls into town. Why? 
because apparently he's not satisfied with where God had placed him. He's out looking for a promotion, and that's when he meets Micah. Look at verse 9. Micah said to this Levite, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said to him, stay with me. Be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes in your living. This is interesting. Remember, Micah already has a priest, his son. Why is he after another one? Because this is a real deal Levite. Levites were supposed to be the priestly tribe. This is an upgrade. Just read verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. More magical manipulation. Just get the right religious combination and I can guarantee the result I want. Which, what does he say it is? Prosperity, wealth, blessing. This is where we need to see truth number four. Idolatry is unsatisfyingly upgradable. Idolatry is unsatisfyingly upgradable. Let me break that down for you. Idolatry is upgradable because there's always something more I could do to try and guarantee I'll get what I want. Micah can get a more legit priest. We, we can... We can pray more, we can give more, read the Bible more, go to church more, 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 more. Idols are black holes of worship. Like they're always taking more and more and more, always upgradable and unsatisfyingly so. Because an idol can never fully deliver on what it promises. Oh, it might deliver for a little while, Micah's son was good as a priest for a little while. But as soon as he saw an option to have a Levite, his son would no longer satisfy. We can see the same results if we look at the Levite's life. He's from a little town of Bethlehem. That was good for a few years, apparently, but eventually it no longer satisfied him. He did what he was not supposed to do. He left home in search of an upgrade. And Micah delivers a satisfying salary. At least for a little while. I mean, how long before this Levite needs his next upgrade? Hint, next chapter. Because shades, idolatry is unsatisfyingly upgradable. Always leaving you craving the next thing. And the next thing. Because it can't deliver on anything that ultimately satisfies. And that's because of the fifth And final truth we need to see. Truth number five, idolatry is ultimately empty. Idolatry is ultimately empty. That single truth is shouted at us through all of chapter 18. I wish wish we had time to go through all the details, but you're just going to have to let me Summarize. Basically, we see Micah's idolatry isn't just true of Micah. No, it's true of everybody. After all, 
Look at chapter 18 and verse 1. It reminds us, in those days, there was no king in Israel. In other words, get ready to see everyone do what is right in their own eyes. And we see it through the tribe of Dan. The Danites, if you read through the chapter, I encourage you to do later this afternoon. The Danites, they live down south, but they're looking to migrate north because they were never able to actually conquer the portion of the land that God gave them down south. So they're not really settled. And instead of repenting of not conquering the land they were supposed to and trusting in the Lord to provide the power, instead of obeying God's word, they do what's right in their own eyes. They send out spies to check out this land up north they've heard about. Laish. Supposed to be really lush, fertile. So these spies, they They're trekking up that way, and on their way, they stop to spend the night at Micah's house where they encounter his shrine, his idol, the ephod, the divining items, and the Levite. And here, we see the shape and size of the Danites' idolatry. It is syncretistic, just like Micah's, because they ask the Levite for some magical manipulation basically wanting him to use everything he's got and his little divining items to prophetically pronounce a blessing on their journey. And without hesitation or authorization, that's what the Levite does. He gives it. Now, Shades, see the irony of this story. This story, the way it's told when you read it, it's supposed to intentionally echo something you've read before. It's supposed to remind you of a story. It's supposed to remind you of Joshua chapter 2. When Israel was first coming into the land and they come to the city of Jericho and they send in spies to check it out, right? The land that they're going to possess. And those spies stay at the house of Rahab, the prostitute. The irony, when you lay these stories side by side, the irony is that in Joshua chapter 2, the spies stay with a Canaanite who ends up becoming faithful to Yahweh. Here in Judges 18, these spies stay with an Israelite who has forsaken Yahweh. The message we're meant to get is that this Levite is more of a prostitute than Rahab ever was. His idolatry is much darker than her immorality. But the Danites don't care. They don't care because he gave them a blessing. And this is all about them. Idolatry always is. It's me worshiping me. So they finish their journey. They go. They spy out the land. They like what they see. They go back home. They're like, let's go take it, y'all. They gather up an army and they head out to conquer the unsuspecting, defenseless city of Laish. That is how our author describes it repeatedly. It's a Canaanite city. And this is the first time in the entire book of Judges that the author tries to make us feel sorry for some Canaanites. Why? Because he wants us to see that Israel is the new Canaanites. They've become the enemy. And what they are doing is not righteous or just or sanctioned by the Lord. Their Canaanization is complete. We see that through their idolatry. On their way with this army to take over Laish, the Danite army stops again to spend the night at Micah's, and ironically, they rob him. Micah, who once robbed his mother, 
is robbed. In fact, they steal the idol. In other words, they steal the same silver he once stole. They take the idol, the ephod, the objects of divination. They even take the priest. Verse 19. They say to the Levite, come with us, be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe, a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. Idolatry is upgradable and unsatisfyingly so, because idolatry is ultimately empty. That's what Micah is about to discover. All of a sudden, he realizes everything's gone. He chases down after the Danites. He catches up to them. And listen to what he says, verse 24. You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? It's the saddest question. What, what have I left? You've taken everything. Micah's idolatry has left him empty. It always does shades. Always. It's going to end up doing the same thing to the tribe of Dan. No, we don't get that story here in Judges, but we get it later. You just keep reading. Dan goes on to conquer Laish. They use all of Micah's stuff to set up their own shrine. And it lasts for a time. But ironically, judgment will come upon their own idolatry. I say ironically because do you know what the name Dan means? Judgment. And judgment eventually comes through a little empire called the Assyrian Empire. And the tribe of Dan will literally disappear from the pages of history. Because idolatry ultimately leaves you empty. Shades, shades. Do you see Judges' final warning about idolatry? The good news, the good news is that Judges doesn't just warn us right here about the darkness of idolatry. No, since the beginning of this book, we have told you that Judges serves as a warning and a witness. And even right here, as we enter into the darkest depths of this whole thing, this book doesn't just warn us, it also bears witness. It doesn't just warn us about the darkness of idolatry, it also bears witness to the light of the gospel of Christ. Look at the very last verse. Chapter 18, verse 31. So they, that's the tribe of Dan, so Dan set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Better translation of the Hebrew right there would be all the while. They set up their own Beit Elohim, house of God, all the while the house of God was at Shiloh. In, in, in other words, while all of this idolatry was going on, while Micah was setting up his house of God, while the Danites were setting up their house of God, all the while, the house of God, the tabernacle, was at Shiloh. In other words, the real thing had been revealed. 
God had made himself known. They didn't have to grope in the dark to discover it on their own. He was accessible, and his invitation was open. Shiloh was there. An invitation for them to to not try to create their own God in their own image, but to come to the God who created them and be conformed to his image. Shades, shades, this is the good news of the gospel. God has made himself known in the shape and size of Jesus Christ. He took on flesh, tabernacled, quite literally, the gospel of John tells us, tabernacled among us, gave himself to us freely. No magical manipulation needed to get him. He gives himself to you freely. You don't have to do more and more and more. You can't do anything. He's done everything. He sets us free, sets me free from worshiping me to actually truly worship him. And he, oh shades, he is not unsatisfyingly upgradable because he is the best thing. You can't upgrade on him. He is what satisfies. He is the one who cures me from ultimate emptiness. Shades, shades, strip from me every idol this world has to offer. As long as I have him, I have everything. Take the world. Give me Jesus. Take the world from me. And I'm not left with Micah's question, what do I have left? Take the world from me. And my question is the question of Asaph in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, everything I've got in this world may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Take the world. Give me Jesus. Shades, do you... Do you see, not just the warning about idolatry, but the witness to forever joy in Jesus. This, this is what judges takes us into the darkness to see that no matter how dark things get, there is one light that the darkness can never conquer, and his name is Jesus. This is what judges wants us to see, not not just the darkness of complete canonization and idolatry. He wants us to see the bright light of Christ in his glory. Shades, see and believe. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.